Our passage this morning comes from the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verses 5 to 6. Please turn with me in your Bibles to read. Again, that's Hebrews 11, verses 5 to 6. It says, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended at having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's my privilege at this time to introduce our preacher for this morning. Uh, Holy Trinity, as Pastor John mentioned last week, was founded with the commitment of raising up other gospel workers, other preachers. And so today we have the privilege of hearing from one of our interns, Stephen Gorbett. This past year, he's been serving as a community group intern, helping to encourage and support our community group ministry. He and his wife have been serving uh, members here at the, the church for a number of years now. So I'm very excited to have him bring God's word for us today. I hope you'll be in prayer for him as he preaches and may God bless the preaching of his word. Good morning, Holy Trinity Church. My name is Stephen Corbett, and it is my joy to bring to you the Word of God this morning. I trust that you had a great Christmas, and I'm sure, like most people, you are looking forward to the arrival of 2021. There's been much talk about how the year 2020 has been one of the worst years in recent history. But there's something arbitrary about the turn of the year. There is nothing intrinsically potent about the turn of a new year, as if at the stroke of midnight there would be reverse Cinderella magic and the pumpkin carriage would arrive and we'd be dressed in gowns and there'd be glamour as we head to a ball and our marital difficulties would disappear and the economic adversity would be dissipated and the social unrest would be eliminated and struggle with sin and doubt and discouragement and loneliness and betrayal and those feelings of insecurity and anxiety wouldn't haunt you anymore. But there is nothing really intrinsically powerful about the change of a new year. And if there's one word that sums up 2020, I think it's the word fatigue. So then what do we do as a church when that fatigue and exhaustion continues to simmer in 2021? What do we do when we are tired? We have need of endurance and not just sheer survival endurance, not just closed fist, eyes closed, cloistered endurance. What gives us a joyful self-giving, flourishing endurance that runs the race of faith. And that's the whole point of Hebrews 11. It was penned to stroke the flames of endurance. Chapter 10, verse 36 says, for you have need of endurance. So in other words, they were suffering under the heat of persecution. They were enduring hard struggles and trials and they needed endurance. So I want to know what gives us that? What gives us endurance that keeps us from spiritual misery? What keeps us from not tossing the whole Christian enterprise? What keeps us from spiritual dithering and 
from sputtering out into indifference. And the whole point of chapter 11 is that the key to a life of, of endurance is not willpower. It's not summoning internal resilience to endure. It's, it's faith. The writer of, Hebrew, of Hebrews is not so concerned about preserving good works. He's not so concerned about preserving a comfortable life. He is mostly concerned about preserving a robust faith. And that's my prayer for Holy Trinity Church, that we would actually flourish in faith. So let's open with a word of prayer. Dear God, we know that our own faith is fickle and wavering. And when we look at our own souls, there's not much to be found. But Lord God, I pray that even in our weak faith, we would look to Christ and that he would give us the courage and the endurance to go forth with much power. So I ask this according to the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So the refrain we keep hearing over and over again in chapter 11 is the instrumentality of faith. Abel, Enoch, Abraham, Moses, Rahab, all of their lives looked radically different, but they had one thing in common and they had faith. They were able to apprehend unseen spiritual realities. They had what Calvin calls the spectacles of faith. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. It says, faith is the conviction of things not seen. Or verse 7, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. Or verse 27, Moses endured as seeing him who is invisible. So the church of Hebrews was struggling with sight. And that's the Christian life. The Christian life is a fight for sight. It is a fight for faith. It is a battle for belief. It is combat for confidence. And once we see the truths of Scripture, and we are utterly convinced that those truths correspond with reality, our lives will inevitably align to those realities. If you want to convince a farmer to work hard and to roll up his sleeves and to labor in his field, you don't tell him that laziness is bad. You tell him it's going to rain tomorrow. And my dear friends, belief precedes behavior. Trust precedes task. Faith precedes faithfulness. And the author of Hebrews is using Enoch to show what it is that must be believed to endure. So I have three points. Point one is Enoch is a testimony of a God-pleasing life. Point one, Enoch is a testimony of a God-pleasing life. So verse five, it reads, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. So God was so pleased with Enoch that he supernaturally intervened and took him away from the earth that he would circumvent death. And we don't know too much about Enoch. He's mentioned in three other places, but I'm just going to mention one. And it's Genesis 
chapter 5. You could turn there, Genesis chapter 5, verse 21 to 24. It says, When Enoch had lived, uh, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So clearly, Enoch didn't die. But what's most remarkable is those who did die. So look at Jared, Enoch's father. What does it say? In verse 20, and he died. Or Jared's father, and he died. Or Methuselah, and he died died. So there was a pattern of death since the fall of humanity. And yet here's Enoch. What does it say? He says, and he was not, for God took him. So Enoch breaks the pattern of death because there was something about his walk with God that moved God to reward him. So now turn back to Hebrews 11. Enoch walked with God, but we don't, we don't hear that in Hebrews 11. He doesn't say Enoch walked with God. In fact, we read that he pleased God. So really, the emphasis is not on Enoch, nor is it on the, how the, mechanics of, the mechanics of how the miracle worked. The emphasis is on why God took him. So notice that small phrase, now before. Now before. Right? You see that. He's saying that the order of events has significance. Something happened before Enoch was taken that is absolutely crucial to understand. And the reason is pretty clear. Why did God take him? God took him away because he pleased God. In other words, God rewards those he is pleased with. But that, that doesn't answer the whole question. The whole reason Enoch was taken away was to show us what it is that pleases God. This was, this was a public thing. Why does the author of Hebrew add that word, those words, and he was not found? You see that, right? And he was not found. Clearly, if he's taken away, he won't be found. But the question is, not found, not found by who? Or in other words, people were looking for him. There was an active search and rescue effort for Enoch. It was a public event. And by escaping death, Enoch proved to everyone that there was something about his life that pleased God. Enoch is a testimony of a God-pleasing life. So then the obvious thing for the writer to do is to tell us what it is that pleases God. And we see that thing right here. It's called faith. So point two is the logic of God pleasing faith. Look at verse six. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. But Genesis doesn't say that Enoch had faith. It said he walked with God. So then where does this idea of faith come from? And this is where we find sanctified logic. So if man is finite and I am a man, I am finite. 
So there's a pre there's two premises and there's a conclusion. The first idea is Enoch pleased God. The second premise is that without faith, it is impossible to please God. So then you, you combine the two. If Enoch pleased God and it is impossible to please God without faith, then Enoch must have faith. He must have had faith. Enoch's walk with God was a walk of faith. Believing in God is, in a sense, walking with God. Walking with God is a metaphor for the continual abiding trust of faith. So through Enoch, the author is bringing out this crucial principle, which is, apart from the presence of faith, no matter what you do, no matter what materializes externally, it is impossible to please God. So ever since Shauna and I moved to Chicago, we've enjoyed the fall weather. And every year we would go to the County Line Orchard and pick apples. But what I like most is not the variety of apples. It is the apple cider donuts. And here's a shocking truth, folks. Unless there's apples, there's no apple cider donuts. You can have donuts. You can have cinnamon donuts, but without apples, it is impossible to have apple cider donuts. Without trees, it is impossible to have a forest. Without a body of water, it is impossible to have a beach. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. It is not only unlikely, it's not only improbable, it is a logical impossibility. It is a non-reality. You'd be better off trying to ignite a flame on the bottom of the ocean than to please God without faith. Oh, and that same word impossible is found in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18. Listen to this. It's kind of insightful. It says, it is impossible for God to lie. A lot of things are impossible. Interesting. And here, it's impossible for God to lie. How outrageous would it be to even begin to speculate that God is a liar? How absurd would that be? My dear friends, God is truth. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. To lie is so contrary to who God is and what he says about himself that the very thought of it, the very thought of God and his nature to lie leads to one conclusion, impossible. And so that same definitive, clear qualification is applied in this verse. You think it's possible to please God without faith. It is so contrary to who God is and how God has revealed himself. It is so perversely incongruous to how God desires us to relate to him that there is only one conclusion for the reader. And it's this. Impossible. Absolutely Absurd. Not only 
Will it not happen? It cannot happen. It is a logical impossibility. And oh, far from being a burden, that truth is freeing. It is freeing. How many of us think that after we enter into Christianity, we have to please God by doing things? Oh, and if you think that you must continue earning God's favor by doing things and you will not endure. If you, when you fall into sin and you put yourself in this weird scenario where you have to work up your, your righteousness before you approach God, that is just wrong. You don't please God that way by doing penance. You please God by faith. If you think that you must continue earning God's favor by doing things, by work, by service, by anything in yourself, you will become a self-righteous prig. You will. You will become a cynical prude that looks down on others. You will be so unhappy with God, so burdened by His commands that you will be a murmuring killjoy. What did Paul say in Galatians 3? He says this, Having begun by the Spirit, are you now, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Does he who supplies the spirit to you, supplies present tense, do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Oh. And if, if it's true, that it is impossible to please God without faith. Well, then the converse is true, isn't it? And please, please get this. The converse is true. If you do have faith, if there is any semblance of faith, true faith in you, then you inevitably please God. Oh, if non-faith is revolting to God, then true trust in God is lovely to Him. God delights. Oh, He is pleased. He delights in the smallest, tiniest little flicker of a burning, burning wick. So even if you're frustrated because your faith is fickle and wavering and tiny and small and uncertain, know that God rejoices with great joy, with great joy in the smallest mustard seed faith. Remember when the disciples were with Jesus on the boat and he said, Oh, you of little faith. What did Jesus do? Did he just abandon them and let them drown? He said, oh, you of little faith. And then he calmed the storm. <laughs> oh, God loves. He loves to give confidence and assurance to those with weak faith. Richard Sibbs writes, None are fitter for comfort 
than those that think themselves furthest off. You think yourself as far off? You are prime real estate for God. Oh, God delights in comforting and increasing and fanning the flame of a burning wick. He loves to give courage to the discouraged. So if you want to endure, know that God is pleased. He is pleased. He is pleased with you. Even in your weak faith. So this text isn't talking about, isn't underscoring the quality of faith. That's important. Quality of faith is something we must work on. That is vital. But the main focus is the object of faith. It is not the introspection of faith. Faith is is fundamentally extrospective. It is outward looking. It is beholding something and being so gripped that it is true that it changes us. We fight to believe. So then that points us to point number three, the object of God-pleasing faith. What is that object? What is it that we lay hold of, that we cling to? And, well, let's look at verse six, that latter half. That first clause, it says, for whoever would draw near to God must believe. So negatively, it's impossible to draw near to God without belief. So positively, if you want to draw near to God, it requires belief. And that's what the author of Hebrews was trying to do. He was trying to reinforce their faltering faith. Hebrews 4.16, the idea of drawing near is just replete. So Hebrews Chapter 4, verse 16 says, Let us then with confidence, confidence, draw near to the throne of grace. He wants them to be confident. Drawing near to God means believing with confidence. Or in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22, it says, again, the idea of drawing near. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. So there's a way to draw near to God. It doesn't come through blood blood and goats, through Mount Sinai, through the Old Covenant. It doesn't come through sacrificial priests. Drawing near to God comes through confident, assured faith. God doesn't want us to have low expectations of Him. He wants us to be absolutely confident of who He is and that what He says is true. And unless there's this assurance, this immovable confidence in God, the Christian life won't endure. It just won't. Because Satan is on the attack. And he does everything to persuade us to live our lives by sight or by feeling or by worldly wisdom or by the bank account. We, our faith is constantly terrorized by what can be seen or heard. 
like phone calls late in the night with bad news or seeing the social dismay on the news or relational heartbreak. And the hope of reconciliation is dashed or loss of popularity or even, as we've seen in this year, death itself. And so often we are driven to physical things to have some sense of stability. And that's not the way to do it. That will drive you to idolatry. Or if you don't do that, it'll drive you to misery and discouragement. And that's because we don't naturally operate according to faith. Naturally, we operate with sight. And yet, there are, are empirical, well, there are unseen realities that exceed empirical observation. That's what we have to get hold of. I remember Dr. Sauer in summer. I was walking out at a campus security from Moody Bible Institute over summer, and it was just completely empty. Professors were gone, students were gone, COVID made everyone work from home. So there was practically no one. So I remember walking through the buildings and I was walking through the Sweden building and for the most part, it should have been empty, but lo and behold, there was a light in the hallway. And there I found my Greek professor. And I was startled, I said, hey, Dr. Sauer, it looks like you're here all by yourself. And without even skipping a beat, without even batting an eye. He looked me dead in the eye, almost like a quasi rebuke. He said, I'm not alone. The Holy Spirit is with me. And from, I just thought this man can see, he can see unseen realities. And that's what I want. That's what Enoch had. Listen to John Calvin. He writes, this is just beautiful. He writes, our circumstances, our physical seen things are all in opposition to the promises of God. He promises us immortality, yet we are surrounded by mortality and corruption. He declares that he accounts as just, yet we are covered with sins. He testifies that he is propitious and benevolent towards us, yet outward signs threaten his wrath. What then are we to do? We must close our eyes, he says disregard ourselves and all things connected with us so that nothing may hinder or prevent us from believing that God is true. There are spiritual, invisible realities that exceed empirical observation, and we must close our eyes and see. And see what? Well, there are two, there are two objects of faith, two unseen realities in this verse. The first one is, look at verse six, for whoever would draw near to God must believe, and here's the first one, that he exists, or the NKJV puts it, we must believe that he is. So faith believes that God is, that God exists independently of us. Whether we believe in him or not, he exists. He simply is. 
God is self-existent. We have the possibility of existing and not existing. There's nothing necessary about you and I, but God is absolutely necessary. Well, all things have come into existence by God's divine fiat. God never, never came into existence. He always was and he always is. He is completely self-sufficient. He has existence in himself. And while everything needs God to exist, he needs no one to exist. Or as Paul says in Acts, God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. He doesn't need you. He is. And a remarkable truth is that in John 8, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is our object of faith. He is the image of the invisible God. He is what all the old covenant and all its signs and types were pointing to. And even, and even Enoch himself was pointing to Christ. Whereby Enoch was taken, Christ was sent. While Enoch avoided death, Christ tasted death. While Enoch pleased God, Christ was forsaken and smitten by God. In the eyesight of our faith, we have to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And Christ is the one who has given us full access to God and his presence. Christ makes us pleasing to God. Christ, it is in Christ that all the promises of God find their yes. So believe in Christ. But then more than that, you must believe that God is a rewarder. The emphasis is not what he rewards, but the fact that he rewards. And the strange beauty of it all is that he doesn't reward any worthiness in you. In fact, he rewards those who admit that they have nothing in themselves that are rewardable. Faith is receiving the rewards accomplished by Christ, not by ourselves. Faith is the full assurance that all the benefits of Christ's accomplishments belong to us. So God's love. God's providential care, the joy and peace of salvation, the Holy Spirit power to slay sin, God's very presence, the heavenly reward. All of these are promises given to us and are guaranteed. They are guaranteed. And God has promised to give them to us. He promised to reward us through Christ. So John Owen, he asked the question, how can we receive the love of the Father? How do we receive the reward of God's fatherly love? And here's a remarkable thing. He says, there is only one way and that is by faith. But listen to this. To receive the love of the Father is to believe that he does love us. You receive the gracious rewards of God by believing that he gives those rewards freely. And not more than that, God is pleased. He is pleased to give the rewards of Christ to us. If faith pleases God, 
And God is pleased when we believe that he is a gracious giver. And then he rewards that. It's remarkable. So God is pleased to give generously and graciously to those who believe he gives generously and graciously. So you want to please God. You want to endure in this Christian life. Believe that God is a gracious and generous giver. But if you want to displease God, if you want to live a Christian life where your arms are drooped and you have weak knees and faith is always unstable, unstable, then believe that God is a begrudging giver. And oh, how blasphemous is it to believe that God is hesitant to give what he promises he is not the supreme Scrooge. He is not the cosmic curmudgeon. He is not a devouring and burdening God. He is not a taker. He is not an oppressor. And many of us wake up burdened by the reality of our sin and our finitude. And we think the answer is to be more resolute, to be more active. And yet how far from the truth is that? We, like we have to pry the reluctant hands of God. That's not who God is. God graciously, freely gives. So if you want to endure in 2021, you have to have a faith that sees God as one who gives freely according to his promises, that gives generously, abundantly, lovingly, all the promises that are in scripture. So then I ask you, HTC, that let us be confident that God always seeks to honor even the smallest faith, and he is a giver of good gifts. Let's close with prayer. Oh, dear God, you don't give us rocks and scorpions. You are our good father. So you give everything which is good for us. I pray, Lord, that you would cultivate in us a faith that believes this to be true. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.